Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, welcome to this bonus episode of Millions of Screens. What follows is our full, lightly edited conversation with the creator and showrunner of NBC's The Good Place, Michael Schur, the creator and showrunner of HBO's Watchmen, Damon Lindelof, and Cora Jefferson, who is a staff writer for both. If you listen to last week's episode, I recommend jumping to a 32-minute mark where we'll cover such topics as Steely Dan, Hot Fruit Hot Takes, and the meaning of life. It is millions and millions of little screens. Can't you shut up? I'm busy. Boy, what a great show. To begin in earnest, uh, I'd like to welcome you all to what I'm, I've been dubbing this entire week the Core Jefferson Coaching Tree. And I mean that with the <laughs> utmost respect uh, and not really? to denigrate. Well, honestly, just for our, our listeners' benefit, obviously you've, you've explained this to me a few times, but um, how does everybody know each other? Uh, if we want to start with Mike, because I believe, Mike, you reached out to Damon, and that's how that friendship began, and that helped influence The Good Place a little bit. But uh, if we don't know, just start there so our listeners can kind of catch up and know why we're having all of you on together. Sure, yeah, I'll connect all the dots. Um, so I, when I had the original idea for The Good Place, um, I realized that it was in a sort of space, creative space that I had no understanding of or knowledge about. And so... I was just a fan of Damon's. Um, I was a huge Lost fan and uh, a huge season one Leftovers fan. And uh, I realized that he was sort of the guy I needed to talk to um, to, to run this idea by because I, I, I liked the idea, but I, 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 re- like, I felt a little like a rube um, trying to work out a show that dealt with some, what I would consider to be sort of like science fiction elements. So through my agent, I reached out to him uh, and said, like, can, you, can I just take you to lunch? And um, I told him that we were going to play a game uh, called Is This Anything, where I, <laughs> I give him an idea for a TV show, and he tells me whether it's anything. So uh, we went out to lunch at a diner in Studio City, and uh, I, I basically pitched him. Um, at that time I pitched him just like the basic sort of setup for the premise and, and walk through the themes and ideas of the show. And I was sort of like, so is this anything? And he very quickly was like, yes, this is something, this is cool, but here are some pitfalls. Um, here are some potential pitfalls that you may run into. Like here are some things you need that you'll hear the problems you'll have, uh, and walk me through a bunch of them. Uh, and it was incredibly helpful and, uh, you know, the show, the, the reason that Damon was the right guy for me at the time was because like the show, uh, I wanted the show to have like cliffhangers at the, every episode, at the end of every episode. I wanted to be heavily serialized. The show already at that point owed a kind of psychic debt, I think, to Lost. And so having him kind of weigh in and explain to me like what he thought of, what his gut reactions were was incredibly valuable. And then he continued to be a sort of trusted source, um, especially when I conceived of the I can't remember Damon at, the, at that first meeting. Did I tell you the big twist at the end of the first season or not? It was either that time or the second time we went out, but I don't remember. You you definitely did. And, okay. Um. And in my memory, which is which is entirely subjective, is the first time that you reached out, we went to Jinkies in Studio City, and it was right around mm-hmm. the time of the Parks finale, and um and either the either you were shooting the Parks finale. 
and and it had not aired or it had just aired but in my but in my memory i hadn't seen it yet and it was just like hey like i'm a huge fan of yours and let's get together this is me saying to you i'm a huge fan of yours and in my memory we talked about parks almost the entire time at jinkies and then it was this 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 lunch that you're talking about was right. almost an entire year later because i already knew you at that point that's right and, I, you're totally then, right yes and yes you absolutely 1000% you had the you had laid out the points system uh the um the Doug Forsett uh and you pitched me the twist which is that um, uh, we're, we can spoil it now. Right. I mean, we're like well past the, <laughs> yeah. you know, this is, the show's over, but the idea that they were not in a good place at all. Um, and that, and that that was going to be the, the season finale of the, of the first season. Right. So that's when I pitched the whole, the whole season, he gave me all this great advice. Um, the show got up and running. And then before the second season, we were hiring writers. I met cord and, um, I can't remember. Oh, it was because you had worked on Master of None. That's why I knew you from Aziz and, and from Alan Yang. We're like, this guy's great. So I met Cord. I met Cord. Um, we were meeting with a small group of writers, like the high level writers in a, in a sort of early prep season two thing in my office at Universal. And so I met Cord before we started that day. And we had a really great conversation in like 17 seconds. And I knew I wanted to uh, hire him or at least make him an offer. And as Cord was leaving, uh, the other writers were in the sort of outdoor or the foyer area. And uh, I was like, hey, this is Corey Jefferson. This is Jen Statsky. This is, uh, you know, whoever. And uh, everyone says hi. And then they come in. And then Jen, as a joke, was like, is that a writer? And the reason that was a joke to her was because Cord is so handsome that nobody <laughs> believes that he could be a writer. Everyone assumes he's an actor. And I was like, yeah, he is. And she was like, shut up. And I was like, no, that guy's, he's a writer. I don't know what to tell you. Like, and the, they, they, no, they didn't believe me for like a solid couple minutes. And then eventually I said, no, he, I convinced them. So Cord came on season two uh, and then was there for the, for the two, three, and four. Um, and then just to complete this cycle, or the circuit rather, uh, we went to a, we, a group of people got together sometime after season two to discuss various aspects of um, activism that we could engage in. Um, uh, and... I asked Cord to come with me and Cord met Damon and the two of them like locked eyes and fell deeply in love and then spent pretty much the entire evening talking to each other. I, I, the, what the, the way that I remember is I, that, that dinner party meeting was uh, like a week or two after the finale of leftovers had aired. And I was like, so obsessed with leftovers, particularly the finale that like, as soon as Damon as soon as I saw Damon, I sort of sidled up next to him. I was like, oh, I'm just effusively praising him and like going on and on about how much I love leftovers. And then I don't know if you, I don't know if you were already thinking about Watchmen at the time, but then you emailed me about a month after that dinner and asked if I would have dinner with you to talk about this thing that you were working on that ended up being Watchmen. Uh, again, remember a little bit differently in terms of that I was I was obsessed with Master of None and Cord wrote an episode called New York, I Love You, which 
um, that was the same season as the Thanksgiving episode that Lena won the Emmy for. Um, and those two episodes of Master of None and an extraordinary season of Master of None, I was just completely geeking out over that. So as opposed to us locking eyes, it was more like I was just staring at Cord constantly and he felt the discomfort of that stare and would occasionally look up and meet my eyes. And maybe Mike witnessed one of those moments. But like, and then I think Watchmen at that point was something that was super top secret and that I had not emotionally committed to yet um, as something that I wanted to do. But Jeff Jensen and I, we had had a couple of preliminary conversations about, about whether it should be done. And then some of these other ideas that were starting to filter in, p- particularly in the ones that were sort of inspired by, uh, by Ta-Nehisi Coates's writing and, and the idea of, 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 uh, of, a, of Will Reeves as a black man who is hiding his identity um, as Hooded Justice. Those were very nascent ideas, I think, at the time that I met Cord. And then a month later, they, I, I, I feel like I was like, I think I want to try this. But I'm not sure when Cord and I went out for dinner at the Chateau Marmont, <laughs> which uh, I just was trying to impress him. I, feel, I always feel very uncool there because people are, that's like the one place in LA, like they, people just smoke cigarettes and nobody tells them not to because they're so, they're so cool and handsome and, mm. and beautiful. And that's when I was like, what do you know about Watchmen? Um, uh, but I'm not like, was I, was I like, we're doing this thing? Or was I like, I'm, 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 I'm thinking of trying it on. I can't remember. The way that I remember it is you were saying you were doing this thing. It was, okay. it was the, 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 that you had sort of, you had already come up with some of the, you know, you told me that you wanted it to be heavily about race. You told me, you told me that you wanted Tulsa to be involved. You told me that somehow police were going to be involved. Um, so it was sort of, it was a, it was a nascent idea, but it, but it was, it, you spoke about it as if it was going to happen. Let me just and say think- that regardless of the details and the timing, the, I'll tell you the feeling I had when we were at that dinner and I saw you, t- <laughs> you talking, which was my husband is leaving me. That's how I, that's, that, that was the feel. I was like, oh, I've, I, my husband is leaving me for another man. That's how I felt. <laughs> and feelings are truth. And you can't say that my feelings are wrong. <laughs> we we can't and we won't. And I think I think that I, I I definitely feel like when Cord and I went out for dinner that he was still writing the penultimate season of The Good Place. So like I I guess in the construct of this metaphor, I wasn't cheating on on anyone, but Cord was. I would like I to think that, I would like to think that we right. formed a throuple. We've formed a polyamorous no. relationship now where we all we all love each other. I think that we can be a little bit more progressive than, than you guys are. We I, can be. I, I definitely We're, remember that I definitely remember having conversations with Cord at various times where I where I would be like, How's Damon? Like <laughs> Does he ever like talk a, about me? Yeah, like a little bit like Damon used to be my friend and now he's your friend and you used to work with me and now you work with Damon and that's fine. I'm fine with it. It's fine. I, I don't care. You may be joking, but I can literally remember at least a dozen instances where I would turn to Cord in the Watchmen writer's room and be like, what, what, what is the good place writer's room like this? Like, do, do you get into hostile arguments and do people leave the room crying? That happens on the good place, right? That, that happens there. And he was always very reassuring when he said, no, absolutely not. We, we, we prime, Joe Mandy primarily makes amazing lists that we all laugh hilariously at and and and, uh it's the opposite of what it feels like to be here so just know that you came out on the right side of that comparison i'd also like to say that i think this would be a great and successful podcast if um 
one question was posed and the three of us just talked until the time ran out. Why don't we just go for that? Like maybe we can just, maybe we can filibuster. Just oh my get God. The pitch. That was absolutely the pitch. Earlier this week, we talked to Mahershala Ali and Sterling K. Brown, and we tried as hard as we could to not say anything because they had such interesting things to say. Now you guys have less interesting things to say, but still way more interesting than what you would have to say. So please feel free. That's, that's absolutely our goal. Uh, well, Libby, do you want to pose the question that we thought we were going to pose based on where they were heading in that conversation? Uh, I couldn't possibly remember what that is at this point, Leo. So if you want to go ahead and ask it. I mean, I'll, I'll, ask, I'll ask the rude version of it, but Cord, who's the better boss? There oh, you wow. go. Nailed it. Let's get who's right to it. Who's the better yes. boss? Really, you really want to dig in immediately. Let's, let's do an exit, encouragement an exit interview. Don't let us ask questions anymore. By the way, it would be just so great right now if Cord just said, I got to be honest, it's Mike. Like, <laughs> it, like instead, Cord's going to hedge and say they're both great in different ways and blah, yeah. blah, blah. But like, if you really, <laughs> like, just, just straight up, just Mike. answer, just answer. Yeah. <laughs> Knee jerk. Don't think, think about it. Don't think about it. it. First truly, thing comes to your head. It's, I, I know that it's going to seem like I'm playing politics and being very democratic here, but um, it is Mike. No, no. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 but I, I really do think that, I mean, they're such different, they're such different guys. I think that, um, I think that something that I share with, I, I share a lot in common with, with Damon is, is that, I hope that you don't think I'm speaking out of turn here by saying this, Damon, but I'm, I'm a very neurotic person. I wear my heart on my sleeve. I have a lot of anxiety, and I think that I'm very open about that anxiety, and Damon is very much that way. Um, Damon, you know, Damon, it, there would be days when, when Damon would say in the writer's room, you know what, I, I, think, we've, I think we've made a mistake in, in attempting this. Maybe it was a mistake to do this show, which, which is like, you know, it's, it's, it's great it is, for morale. It's really, it is, it's really, it is, really great for morale. It could be pretty rough sometimes. Like maybe, yeah. you know, there were, there were days that were, that were, were really hard days in that room where we sort of like talked in circles and, and sort of discussed things uh, to no end and, and felt like very, very difficult. And I think those were the days that Damien would say, you know, this wasn't a good day. Maybe, maybe this was a bad idea, but, but it's too late. We're, we're on the path. And so you leave so there. So 10 a.m. tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, a, little, <laughs> a little dejected. Um, and so, but, but at the same time, like I appreciated that because I'm a man with, with a bunch of my own neuroses. And so, uh, I appreciated though that it, it never felt like you were dispassionate. It felt like that you felt that way because you loved what we were doing and you loved Watchmen so much and you really wanted to make the work as, as good as it could possibly be. And I think that th that is, you know, I have imposter syndrome and you and I have discussed imposter syndrome at length together, Damon. And I know that you have imposter syndrome also. And I think that imposter syndrome for a lot of people talk about it all the time, but I think that in my mind, imposter syndrome means that you love something and, and that you want it to be really good and that you want to work as hard as possible to make it good. And so I appreciate that about you. Mike, on the other hand, is um, a thing that I really love about Mike as a boss is that he, you are the opposite, Mike, in that I've never truly in my life met somebody who's more even keel. I have never come across somebody who is calmer under pressure, uh, who just, who, who sort of exudes uh, exudes ease and exudes um, just the feeling that everything is going to be all right, truly. And so, you know, making TV is, can be a very difficult undertaking and there's a lot of money involved and a lot of people's jobs are involved and livelihoods. And so you want to get it right because you don't want to feel like people are wasting their time 
working with you or, or, or you don't want people to lose their jobs because you aren't doing your job well enough. And so I think that that I'm a kind of person who I, I sort of feel that anxiety deeply. And Mike, if you feel that you, you never ever let on that you're feeling that. And I think that the, uh, the confidence that you exude, I think just bleeds into the room and, and, and makes everybody feel that way also. So, uh, I would say, I, truly, I, I loved working for both of them, and I would do it in a heartbeat if they ever asked again. That's a very kind and uh, and lovely answer. Um, I will only add, first of all, thank you for saying those things. Uh, I do feel those things. It's impossible not to, because like you said, there's so much money and, and people's jobs at stake and everything else. Um, but uh, like I'm like a, I'm like a classic middle child who, who like is a peacemaker. And so my, I, I sort of grew up in this world of like, just to like smooth everything over. Like that was always my sort of personal goal was just, just like keep, keep, keep the temperature down, keep people, uh, uh, keep the boat floating. Um, so the, I do feel those things. I just, I, I, I kind of like they're for me to feel, I try to protect the people, um, in, on the show that I'm working on from feeling them too. Cause they're unpleasant feelings. And I feel like it's, that's part of the job at some level. Uh, or you go Damon's route and just talk about how it was a mistake to even attempt this. I think that's another way to go. <laughs> I will say this though, um, that uh, <clears throat> sometime late in the process of making Watchmen, knowing that that Damon, knowing how much Damon had invested in it, um, I texted him and just said, "Hey man, how are you doing? Uh, everything okay? How's it going?" And he was uh, like, "I don't know. This is. Uh, I think uh, he he said something like, when this show works, I think it really works.' And and then other times, I think it definitely doesn't work." And I said, um, I promise you it's great. It's going to be amazing. Um, and uh, and uh, it's gonna, people are going to love it. And he wrote back, like, I will bet you anything that that's not true. I'll bet. And I said, great. Like, like, what do you want to bet? This is the easiest money I'll ever make. Like, what, what do you want? What do you want to bet? And he said, we'll find an impartial observer, an, an impartial judge when the show is out. And we'll ask that impartial judge uh, whether that impartial judge thinks the show works. Um, and I said, great. And then after the Emmy nominations came out and it got 26 nominations, I screenshotted that text exchange. I sent it back to him and I said, the impartial observer was the television academy. <laughs> the, the judgment is in. The show works. You owe me whatever it is that we bet. I don't even, do we even actually, we never actually bet anything, right? I think I, 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 lost, I should have said like a million dollars. Like I should, I could I have taken was- you for everything. I think the stakes were like a future shaming on a podcast, which I think is <laughs> you are you're now collecting. So uh, that's uh, not good enough. I would have yeah, done that anyway. Um, but uh, I think a million was, dollars seems reasonable. <laughs> it was very. It was extremely gratifying to me to have the confidence that Watchmen was going to work. A thing I wasn't involved in at all, except that my uh, ex-husband went to work for it after he <laughs> left me. Um, and it was extremely gratifying to me to have the confidence that it was going to be as good as it was. And then to have that sort of, in, in, in whatever way you can prove these things, like it has been proven. And, uh, and so I enjoyed rubbing it in your face a little. That's what I'm saying. One of the questions that I had um, and, and not to um, n- not to wrest control of of, uh, of of the conversation from you guys, but I Cord now has run his own show. Um, we we now like uh, he he it's it's not finished, but he has he has had the experience of at least running a writer's room. It's it was interesting. I, I mean, it was more work than I've ever done before. It was I, I sort of I knew that it was going to be a lot of work. I didn't realize how much work it was going to be though. I would say that the I would say that uh 
I probably, so I was actually just talking about this with a friend uh, uh, the other day. I would probably say that I'm more Mike than Damon in the room as far as, as far as presence goes and sort of like the, the calm thing goes because, but, but you know, I, I, I sort of, as soon as I close the Zoom, I start to freak out and panic and like there's sweat stains on my shirts after I, after I get out of there because I'm so nervous about this. This is actually, I, so I went, before I started running the room, I went to both Mike and Damon and like asked them questions about how to show run. And um, <laughs> Mike's, I was so nervous even talking about the concept of show running a room that I was like in a flop sweat by the time, like not even a joke. Mike had to ask me, are you okay? In the middle of our conversation because I was, I was, drenched in sweat like so panicked just even talking about it i i remember so humiliated like we gave a hug on the way out this was pre-covid and i remember hugging you and just like being like oh it feels like i'm in miami in the dead of in the dead of summer this is awful but um but when i was in the room i tried to i tried to at least exude calm but i think that i was thinking i was thinking the other day that that the thing that i've taken from damon is before i started working for you, I think that storytelling to me was this very, I wanted to be, I wanted all of my scripts and, and the things that I wrote to feel like this crystalline structure where all the T's were crossed and all the I's were dotted and everything made sense and you, and you sort of, everything that happened here like was paid off here eventually and the audience would leave with no questions and that, that people would say like that was, uh, it was like a perfect Jenga tower with, with no missing pieces. And I think that the thing that I took from you is just instinct. I think that something that was amazing to watch uh, when you were doing your job in the room was, was just how, how motivated and guided by instinct you were. I, I think that a, a, a story that a story that I love about you that, that I go back to all the time is, is, uh, you know, I was a leftovers obsessive, as I said, and, and um, hearing how there, there's that scene in the leftovers, if, if anybody knows it, where uh, Carrie Coons, asks the prostitute, she, she puts on the, she puts on the bulletproof vest and asks the prostitute to shoot, to shoot her. Um, and I remember you saying, Damon, that Tom Parada was like, okay, that's an interesting pitch, but why, why is she doing that? And, and forgive me if I, if I, if I miss telling this, but I remember you saying, Damon, that you were, that you said, I, I don't know why it just feels like she should. And I think it's cool. And Tom was like, okay, but, but, why? Like, I, I'm willing to, I'm willing to concede this and it'll get in the episode, but tell me why. And you couldn't, you couldn't specify exactly why you just thought it was cool. And I think that I've, when I was in, in, in my room, I started following that instinct much more than I was, than, than I would. The idea that like, this is cool or interesting or surprising, despite the fact that I can't sort of necessarily tell you intellectually why this person is making this decision or why this thing is happening. I just think it's cool and interesting and surprising and mysterious. And I think it's going to add to add to what we're doing. And I think that I left that room being much more confident in my, in my instinct and just following that feeling and following, following my heart and my stomach sometimes over my, over my brain. And so I think that I hope that I, took the best of both worlds because I really do feel like I learned so much from both of you. And hopefully I was able to incorporate it um, in that room. I, I hope that the, everybody that, that I worked with would, would say the same. 
Cord, can you tell us what show that was that you show ran? Because yeah, yeah, it was it's a, yeah, yeah. It's a show. It's a show called uh, Scraper. Um, that that is um, before. So my last journalism job before I started working in television is I worked at Gawker um, from 2012 to 2014, and so it is based loosely in a a, a tabloid news website uh, based loosely on Gawker, set in the set in the year 2010, and it's just about. Um, about the people's lives who work at this at this tabloid news website. I I love it. Uh, I I just gave it a positive <laughs> review. Like I okay. I'm all in. Um, yeah. Thank you. But let me pivot to Mike. Um, congratulations on that on that final season of Good Place. It was glorious. Specifically the finale. You grappled with so many big topics there, including the idea of someone. Uh, in the afterlife, choosing to move on beyond that. Um, how did those conversations about these concepts uh, happen in the writer's room, um, given that in a very real way, these were, were people choosing to end their experiences on earth, their, or experiences in the universe, their, their lives? if you will, their afterlives, if mm -hmm. you will. What did, what did framing that look like? This is kind of a, it's a complicated answer. Um, the, the first thing I would say is that the show uh, was always about death, even though we never dealt with death because the, it starts with everybody dead. And so death, right. um, the end of your journey was a sort of underlying, like it was hovering there the whole time the show was on. And we just never had to actually talk about it because we were showing what happens after it happens. Um, but it just felt like natural. I mean, the endings of things are, um, of shows, of journeys are, like death is one possible way to go, right? Like it's, that's the ultimate ending. And so pretty early on, like I think at the beginning of season three, even maybe Cord can correct me on this, but we started talking about what the ending of the show looked like. We knew, I knew it, I didn't want it to go past about four seasons, about 50-ish episodes. Um, the studio network didn't know that at that time. Um, but you, that, I remember you saying that as early as when I first started working on the show in season two, you said you think it's going to be a four, four season yeah. show. It just, it, if, if you just, if we laid out the sort of like signposts of what I thought was going to happen, it, that's what it ended up seeming like was going to be the case. So when we really started talking about it in earnest, like it was like, well, a lot of, um, a lot of conceptions of the afterlife and a lot of discussion about immortality uh, comes back to the same idea, which is like, it doesn't matter how you design it, it sucks. Like immortality sucks. And there, uh, you, you, if you live forever, a couple things happen. Um, and philosophers have explicitly written about this, like you, you get really bored um, and, and, and everything loses its meaning. And also any sense of morality disappears because, and Chidi says this at one point um, in season uh, two, I guess, he says like, look, if, if, you, if you're gonna live forever, like, who cares what you do? Who cares whether you're a moral agent? Uh, because you know you commit a you commit some kind of crime or moral uh, failure. Wait a billion years, like the guilt will fade. Like things lose their meaning when time is infinite. And so, it just seemed like the natural thing for a show that's explicitly about ethics and and morality to say like, well, the only way this can end is for for their lives and their existences to end because otherwise, nothing they did really meant anything. And so that. Like it, we were, we knew that was going to be the ending pretty early. Um, we didn't know the details or exactly how we were going to get there, but I, I, we knew when we started talking about immortality, 
um, as early as season two to like lay the groundwork for the fact that by the end of the season, uh, by the end of the series, rather, they were all going to make this choice. Um, and we, you know, we did some reading about, um, you know, about end of life decisions. And we did some reading at the Todd May, who was one of the professors who helped us out, wrote a whole book called death. That was about this exact subject. That's how we found him as he wrote this book that was about, um, about why, why the fact that life is finite is crucial for, for moral behavior and for morality meaning anything. So it, it wasn't one conversation or it wasn't even a, a series of conversations in the final season. It was sort of baked into the whole show from, from the time Cord joined. Like it was, it was something that was beginning to percolate and that began to feel like the right way to sort of say goodbye. And so it had this nice um, kind of side effect, which was like for a show that was it's sort of implicitly about death the whole time. It became explicitly about death um, at the very end. And that, that was a real punch. Like it, it felt like it, it felt like it had some impact because we were suddenly talking about instead of like things continuing on forever or resetting constantly or whatever. Um, so I don't know if I, I don't know if that answered the question, but um, that, that was really a, um, it was very organic. It, it came about very naturally from the stuff we were investigating and, you know, we did an episode in season two about the fact that like it was impossible to teach Ted Danson's character anything about human morality because he was an infinite being and he had no concept of why things mattered one way or the other. So they had to sort of create an existential crisis for him so that he considered the absence of his existence in the universe for the first time. And like from I know for a fact that from that point, <clears throat> excuse me, from that point on, the idea that each of them would be able to sort of leave and choose their own ending um, was sort of like where we were headed. And we just sort of kept slowly creeping up to that point um, until the very end. As the, as the writer on the, on the, on the call that had no um, understanding of how they arrived at these decisions. And although Mike would check in on occasion over the course of the first couple seasons, I made it be, be very clear to him and for Cord as well, once he started working on Watchmen, that I did not want to be spoiled under any circumstances. Um, and I just wanted to watch The Good Place like everybody else did. So I think that I was able to watch the final couple seasons in, in a way that I wasn't able to watch the first couple of seasons, which is I literally didn't know anything about what was about to happen. And, I, and I'll just say that to me, one of the most incredibly impressive things about the way that the show wrapped up and endings are in, incredibly difficult um, is first off, the show was very funny. Um, and I think that to keep, to keep the show funny in the midst of all the things that Mike just, you could literally be listening to this podcast, having never seen The Good Place and be like, Mike was just talking about a drama. And I think that in many ways, uh, The Good Place was that too. But the most impressive thing to me about those, the, the way, the end game, as it were, was how they, issue, how they dealt with the issue of scale. And that is to say that traditionally, if you're doing like Harry Potter or the Avengers, you understand that if Harry Potter doesn't defeat Voldemort, it's the fate of the world uh, that is at stake. And, it, and if, if the Avengers don't defeat Thanos, it's the fate of the world. They have to, they're trying to get half of the world to come back to life, et cetera, et cetera. 
the good place when you actually tell people what the end game was, which is that these individuals, these six individuals basically fixed the afterlife. The afterlife was broken. And, and were, were it not for the intervention of these individuals, the, the afterlife would have remained perennially broke, uh, 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 ultimately broken. They came in, they diagnosed the problem, and then they fixed it. And then, and th- but then once that was done, what we really cared about was them. And so the show scaled all the way back down and became super intimate for its, for its, its, its final episode. And, and you realize I wanted them to fix it. That mattered. But I cared much more about these sort of quiet moments out in the trees. And it was really beautiful. And even just talking about it, I'm, I'm just remembering the sensation of, of watching the show ending. And I've always long believed that, and I think Mike and I may have spoken about this, as Parks was, was ending when we first met at Jinkies, which is that you wanna, you wanna stick the landing, but most of all, you want to create an emotional experience for the audience that is, that is like parallel to their experience of letting go of the show. You know, this idea of like, I, we've formed a relationship with the good place and the characters that inhabit it. And so we're not gonna see them again. And so if you're feeling the same thing, watching the story unfold as you are, having the experience of this is the, this is the end this is the bon voyage this is the, this is the post graduation party in high school where i'm telling these people that i'm going to keep in touch with them but many of them i will never ever say another word to like if you're feeling all of those things and it's really bittersweet and beautiful that is that is a really difficult brass ring to grab and i just i'm i'm not just saying this because I love Mike and Cord, but I really, truly love that show. And, I, um, uh, and I'm so glad that it's being celebrated. Uh, well, I think this is actually a, a perfect segue to a question that's been lingering with me uh, since 2017. And Libby and Leo are both shaking their heads because I've talked about it ad nauseum. Oh, because um, you pronounced segue, seg- it's supposed to be segue. I can't do the <laughs> emphasis like you can. But Mike and Damon, you were on a Vulture Fest panel that was actually titled Damon Lindelof and Mike Schur discuss TV and the meaning of life. And I love that panel. And that, that panel covered so many topics. And uh, Joseph Dalian, who was the moderator, is, is fantastic. He never actually asked the question to both of you, what is the meaning of life? And Mike, I was able to ask you this a little bit ago, but I'd love to see if it's still kind of the same answer. And Cord, obviously, you've worked on this show, so you've thought a lot about these bigger questions and, and kind of these ultimate meanings. And obviously, Damon, your work has, has delved into this in various ways over the years. Um, so I, I, I'm just going to start with Mike since he's had an answer and has been asked this a bunch of times before. Uh, what is the meaning of life to you? The show, one of the sort of missions of the show we talked about a lot was like, look, we're asking some pretty big questions here about what matters um, and what doesn't. And the show ought to have a response to that. Like we ought to have an official stance. And the thing that we arrived at, um, which is, a little bit comes from sort of what you would think of as Aristotelian virtue ethics. Um, and it a little bit comes from t- defining uh, the stance against the stances of some other uh, um, philosophers or philosophical schools of thought. And then it comes a little bit just from like my own belief or whatever, and the beliefs of the other writers on the show where we sort of arrived at was like um, the, that the, the, the goal isn't, I think, to, uh, to solve the problem, to answer the question um, of, of what matters. And this feels a little, this gets a little semantically tricky, but I think the meaning of life isn't to answer the question, what is the meaning of life? The, the meaning of life is basically to care, 
to try to find the answer, to try to, to make the attempt um, to search for it. And because there is no, I don't think there's an answer. Um, and, the, and people generally fall into two categories. And you see this all the time, especially in modern day America. There's people who care, who give a shit, and there's people who don't. And the, the caring and the trying and the, the attempt, the kind of day-to-day attempt to be a good person or to be a better person or to, um, to just um, improve the world in which we live is, is I think, what matters. Um, because the people who aren't doing that are just giving up or they're, or they're selfish or they read an Ayn Rand book and when they were 16 and never grew up, right? Like the, the, and they just decided that the answer is uh, to, to turn inward and to be selfish and to care about no one. Um, and then the, the other school thinks like, well, hang on, like we're, we're sharing the planet and we're all here together and the answers are unknowable. And the fact that we're not alone means that we owe something to the other people that we're here with. And you, that, that question of like what we owe to each other, which was the main question that the show asked really, um, you see it so, part of the reason I think this is the answer is because you see that question being asked and answered correctly and incorrectly on a daily basis. Like the, the most what we owe to each other thing that has ever happened is the mask debate, right? It's like you're, every single person on earth is being asked the same, uh, the, the same thing. The, the same request is being made of everyone on the planet simultaneously, which is take a $3 piece of cloth and throw it over your mouth and nose when you go outside. And it's a pretty minor request. It's pretty easily achievable. The benefits of, of doing it are the entire world goes back to normal and nobody gets sick and dies. And the harm that is done when you, you answer this request is your, uh, your nose and mouth get a little itchy and it's a, like a little bit uncomfortable when it's hot outside. This is the easiest and most um, obvious win <laughs> that humans, this is the chance, like we're all being given the chance to essentially do the most heroic possible thing that humans can do, which is save other people's lives. We're all being given the chance to storm the beaches in Normandy, except there's, we're not getting shot at by Nazis. And the fact that people aren't doing it, um, and not only not doing it, but getting angry when they're asked to do it, is a, a daily pain for me. Like I feel it, uh, I feel a visceral daily, almost hourly pain when I see those videos of people at Trader Joe's screaming and yelling about liberty and freedom and bald eagles in America, because um, it's just such a small sacrifice. And so when I see those things, I come back to this same answer all the time. The, the, the thing that matters, the thing that ultimately gives meaning to life or is the meaning of life or however you want to phrase it is just trying and caring to look after the people around you and to realize we're not alone and to understand that being alive on earth means that you owe things to other people. That's it. And, and it's, it's such a minimal ask. The things that the, when you get right down to like the granular level of like what that entails, it's pretty minimal. It's not a big deal. It's not, um, most people are not asked to rush into burning buildings and save other lives. Most people are asked to wear a mask or to drive roughly speaking the speed limit or to, um, to tip people um, when they provide good service or whatever. It's pretty small requests that are made in this, in this like genre of existence. And so I, I, the show really made me believe that, that, that the trying and the caring was actually the answer. 
Um, and I, I think that at the end of the day, you know, if you look at the last season of the show, like there are a lot of monologues like that. Eleanor's monologue to Janet when they're sitting on the bench in the, in that little grove of redwoods. And Janet says like, I wonder how Michael's doing. You know, what she says is like, he's probably doing about as well as anybody. He's like, he's like, he has some good days and he has some bad days and he has some friends and some people he can't stand and he's screwing up and he's trying again and he's screwing up and trying again and he's failing and then trying again. Like that's all you can do um, when you're alive on earth. And that's kind of all that's really being asked of you. So that's the, that's like my sort of long winded way of saying that I believe the meaning of life, <clears throat> if there is one is just to care, to try to find it and to, and to, to make the attempt to actually be a good person. That's sort of where I ended up. I would, I would certainly co-sign on everything uh, that, that Mike said. Um, I, I, th- that was like a sick Paul Ryan burn in there. And I just want you to know that I caught it. And if he's listening to this podcast, you can go fuck yourself, Paul Ryan. Well, if it, if it had been a yeah. true Paul Ryan burn, I would have said, uh, read an Ayn Rand book when he was 16 and then gr- never grew up and then also handed out copies of that book to people who came to work for him in the halls of the sacred yeah. U.S. Congress. This week's he episode may- of Millions of Dreams is brought to you by Paul Ryan. <laughs> yeah, he may, he, may be wearing a, he may be wearing a mask, but I doubt he is. I mean, I, I, I will say that, um, that the, <laughs> oddly enough, the movie Defending Your Life feels to me like it's always been um, a relative uh, or uh, of, the, of the good place and um, because it deals with the afterlife in a comedic way. But I think that the conclusion that that movie comes to and it, and it presents it out front is that the meaning of life is basically to kind of like know, understand fear and overcome it. Um, and so I would just sort of, I think that people who don't wear masks are not assholes they're not evil and they're not cruel. They're scared. Um, and I think that, um, and it is very, uh, it's very difficult to walk up to someone who's screaming in a Trader Joe's and say, what is it you're scared of? But understanding that they're, they're coming from a place of fear um, and, and, and treating them with some degree of empathy and compassion, even though everything that they're doing is jeopardizing the lives of others, or maybe it's been politicized or, or whatever it is, that's an incredibly difficult discipline to, to move through life with. But I do think that finding some balance between knowing that thyself, where it's basically like, hey, if you want to go sit by Walden Pond and write poetry, and that's your jam, and that's the way that you're going to make the world a better place for centuries to come, even if nobody ever gets to read what you wrote, good on you. Um, and if you want to live, want to be Mother Teresa or John Lewis and live a life of service, good on you. Like, um, but finding some balance between improving yourself and improving the world uh, in which you live scaled appropriately, whether that's just your immediate family or beyond. Cool. But I think that the biggest thing that you can do in terms of the meaning of life is identify what it is you're scared of. And I'm not talking about like spiders or snakes or enclosed places, which are very natural, primal, instinctive, Darwinian fears, but the other stuff, the big stuff, understand why does this scare me? And then and then try to reprogram yourself to not be afraid of it anymore. Um, and don't judge others when they're acting in a way that seems angry, but is actually fearful. She I want to hear what Cord right thinks now. the meaning of life is. Yes, me too. Cord also has a very, very specific fear. I don't know if he wants to talk about it, but he has one very 
very yeah, intense a, fear. Irrational that, fear. It's very weird that, that you guys were talking about. So uh, th- this is- It's so, cactuses. Well, just, it's cacti. Just, <laughs> Oddly <laughs> enough, towards most uh, deepest this fear. exposure is, therapy. Yes. Yeah, it's good. Uh-huh. Pure exposure therapy. You can imagine being raised in Arizona. What a nightmare. But the, the, th- the fear that Mike is talking about that, that is it, admittedly irrational. I will, I will say that it's irrational. It's probably going to be one of the weirdest things you guys have heard is- I, I have, I've always had this fear of jogging outside. I prefer to jog on, on treadmills because I have this fear that one day there will, be, there will have been a madman who hangs fish hooks from tree branches and I would run past one and, and a fish hook would get caught on my eyelid and yank it back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think what? anything. I don't it's think absolute, was, nothing was talked about more in a good place where it is room than this. When, when you said you had an irrational fear, <laughs> you you had me at just jogging on the treadmill, but yeah. then it just kept going. It kept going, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. It, now you we we. I mean, we broke this down so many times. We were like, okay, so there's a madman on the loose. The madman's plan is to hang fish hooks with. Or, uh, with like fish, fishing wire was it right so you can't see it yeah thin filament it's invisible, gendered yes. gendered by the way like is there any space for a mad woman to have done this it, look or? we don't know who this person is this okay. person is just on the loose Got but, it. but the thing that really put us uh, would re- truly delighted me was the the to, to imagine the person going like okay i need to figure out how tall cord is because if i misjudge <laughs> the the fish hook length i'm not going to get his eyelid so that the, the yeah. person has to follow court around and be like okay this is exact and then like measure exactly okay now i've got him and then it just like the idea of like the mad person just like watching from the shadows as here comes cord in silhouette jogging down those free those boulevard whatever <laughs> and like going come on buddy come on and then just like narrowly narrowly missing one day like oh i almost had him i mean we we really I, did we talk about any single one of our foibles more than this no it, it was a, a great great explanation of writers rooms in that i i made myself vulnerable to my co- colleagues and they, <laughs> they they berated me about it for years <laughs> okay but here's the problem here's the real problem with your fear is that the more you talk about it and the more people you tell i mean honestly the more likely it is it's going to happen yeah uh, exactly because you're just exactly. giving people ideas uh, exactly. at this point Exactly. Never should exactly. have told anyone. I think that I actually did a, uh, a, a, I don't know, I did a Radio Lab podcast. I'm sorry to, to name drop other podcasts on this podcast, but I did a Radio Lab podcast a, a few months ago in which they had this, they had this episode about what would be your one sentence. Um, there's this, there's this uh, physicist, I think in the 60s, who, who, who said, what is the one sentence that you could leave behind for um, humanity, if if the world were if the world were going to go away, Richard Feynman, right? Yes, like yes, yes, Feynman. yes. It was the Feynman sentence. So, and um, like, what would it be? And mine was, um, mine was the only things that you're inherently afraid of are falling and loud noises. The rest of your fears are learned and mostly negligible. And so, uh, I think that that sort of like falls very much in line with what you were talking about, Damon, which is that. Um, you know, we've learned, we've learned all these things. We've learned all these prejudices and these, and these fears, and we've learned to be afraid of people who are different from us and who have different belief systems than us and who look different from us and eat different food from us. And, and we've sort of learned all these, all these biases. And it is, I think that 
you know, both of something you talked about a lot, Mike, is is sort of service to others, and I I believe that that is deeply important. But I think that the one of the ways that you can go about servicing others is is self reflection and and sort of figuring out uh, the ways in which you are biased and the ways in which you have been um, hurt and the ways that you have been traumatized and trying to figure out how to not traumatize others the way that you have been traumatized. And so I think that I you know. I, I sort of like talk about therapy so much. Uh, it's probably annoying to the people who are close to me, but, but I think that um, spending years in therapy and, and, and spending years in reflecting on self and, and, and figuring out why I, I do the things that I do and why I, I behave the way that I behave and why I uh, do things sometimes that, that occasionally hurt people who, who love me and, and who I love uh, has been incredibly important in, in just my growth and, 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 and how I, how I face the world and how I, how I, how I treat other people. And so I think that, that sort of self-reflection and unlearning the things that you've learned and, and figuring out why, why you do the things that you do, a, that self-reflection is incredibly important. So I think, you know, just figuring out the ways in which you have been messed up and then working, trying your best to Mike's point to not mess up others in the same way is probably probably the, the meaning of life to me. Uh, well, good synthesis. Th- thank you guys so much for being here. I'm going to do a real quick lightning round of very dumb things because uh, we didn't get a chance to talk about Steely Dan at length. Cord, uh, give me a fuck, Mary kill of Ricky Don't Lose That Number, Reeling in the Years, and Black Cow. Okay. Uh, Black Cow Mary. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, fuck. Uh, fuck. What was it? Reeling in the years, Black Cow. And Ricky, don't lose that number. Kill Ricky, don't lose that number. Marry Black Cow. Fuck. Uh, f- fuck. Um, what was the third one? I'm, I'm blanking again. You got to fuck reeling, reeling in the years, right? Reeling in the years. Yes. Fuck reeling in the years. Kill Ricky, don't lose that number. Marry Black Cow. Definitely. You're just going to ask that question absent context? <laughs> I mean, we, we, do, we do have to clarify that for all the praise that Mike and I have been lavishing upon the brilliant core Jefferson, <laughs> the one thing that is outside the Venn diagram of his otherwise incredible taste as it relates to all things that have been created since the dawn of time is that he loves Steely Dan. <laughs> and it just doesn't compute because they are empirically terrible. That's correct. Absolutely. Empirically this is a bad take. Terrible. I it is the bad take. It is a wild take. Steely Dan, <laughs> Steely Dan is my favorite band. They will always be my favorite band. I love them. I, the, the grief that these men have given me about my musical taste, particularly Mike. Mike used to make Twitter polls to, to mock my music tastes for, for hundreds of thousands of people. To <laughs> we, uh, <laughs> we, uh, at one point, we Cord and I have such discordant taste in music that we made a, a giant Venn diagram in the writers' room of like uh, his loves and my loves, and then the only where do they intersect? And the intersections are there are some, right? I forget what they are now. There were some. Like, there were. Some. Yeah, I will say I left I left both Peg and which is I think your favorite song, Cord, and I left oh, Peg and Blues. Peg. I left Deacon Blues, which is my favorite Steely Dan song, off of that list. Uh, but Mike, Love this is both. less a question and more an agreement. We're talking about hot takes. I agree with your hot fruit take. To, really? Not to, the fuck? Not to infringe uh, on this pos- is an ambush. Not to infringe oh, wow. upon the podcast IP that you have with Joe Posnanski, <laughs> but uh, I do agree with your hot fruit take. I'm with one exception, it. plantains. Okay. Uh, when it's when it's not sweet plantains, 
but salty plantains. I mean, what are you even Wait, talking again, about? Again, absent context <laughs> is the hot is the is the sure hot take that there is no place in society for hot fruit. That's correct. The so hot fruit any, is, there's any baking up pie? Eating up fruit is a crime against humanity. There's no such thing as good hot fruit in any context. I don't don't care what you bring up. You're going to bring up all the, I know that right now in your head, there's 11 things you want to try to get me with. You're not going to get me with any of them. They're all <laughs> disgusting. Hot fruit pie is disgusting. Cobbler's disgusting. It's all nasty and gnarly. And the point of fruit is that it is grown naturally and you're supposed to eat it either cold or at room temperature and heating it up is utterly pointless and it makes everything worse. It is so eating a peach, hot peach pie is so much worse than just eating a delicious cold peach. It's, and in every circumstance like it, it is you are making the fruit worse by heating it up what about i like, I know, like cold, cold fruit what, what, just, what about like, what about a, what, what about a nice mold cider on an october day you know what's better than that damon apple juice drink a glass of fresh cold <laughs> apple juice it's way better mold right. cider is nasty it's disgusting it's all <laughs> have you bad. even have you even tried it I've had, I grew up in New England. Of course I've had hot cider. And I was like, why am I drinking hot apple juice? This is awful. It's awful. How often do people make you try to try things? Like how often are they like, you haven't had this? No, they're like, like everyone I know is like, well, you haven't had a really good rhubarb, whatever. The bane of your position. It really is. And and I don't mind, like I'm, I'm, I'm right. So I don't mind coming (laughs) at me with all of their wrong takes. It's fine. It only proves my point. I'll just say like in the grand... In Go the ahead. grand scheme of things, I, 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 I do like uh, like a nice warm apple pie with uh, particularly with vanilla ice cream. That said, that if I if if you said to me that either I could never eat warm fruit again in the rest of my life, or I never had to listen to another Steely Dan song. I would most certainly say I would rather never listen to a Steely Dan song. Oh my God. It's not even close. Oh my God. You are unbelievable. The, uh, the, 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 so, so I found it. The things that we agreed on boys of summer is an amazing song. We agreed on that Rushmore. We agreed on Nicole Hall of center who we both love. Mm -hmm. We both agreed that we disliked the doors. (laughs) Um, Whiplash. Nicole Hall of center makes music. No, yeah, no, no, it's just, it's just, it's just in the culture. This is just, this is just, yeah. just, just you were just like, oh, wow. you were just like, you've never heard her spoken word album. <laughs> this not. is in the culture. She has a SoundCloud. Yeah, okay. She's in a, yeah. she's in a prog rock trio and they're incredible. <laughs> Got it. Still yeah. Listen to it, yeah. All right. Yeah, so those, are, those are the few things in, in the yeah, entirety of movies, things. TV, music, anything that we actually. My agree. side was Stin, Steely Dan and Thin Lizzy, who were both incredible. Oh my God. Your side was The Who, The Who and Sweet Potatoes, which I think are disgusting. Yeah. Oh, they are disgusting. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Thank you. Wait, are uh, sweet potatoes and yams different? Yeah. Or are they the same? Mm-hmm. No, no, they're different. They suck. I like sweet potatoes, but I don't like yams. Very strange because they taste almost exactly the same. They taste very, very similar. <laughs> yeah. Dave, oh, it's Dave. very strange, Mr. Fishhook. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's where you draw the line at yams? All right, pal. <laughs> They don't even have a name for your phobia, and I just don't like yams. <laughs> Maybe that's why he's doing it. Maybe he's angling to get like an official AMA phobia like designation. Yeah. I'm yam averse, and you don't jog outside because you think that someone is going to dangle fish hooks from trees. All right. 
Mailing the Screens is a production of the Penske Media Corporation and IndieWire. Our theme music features excerpts of the classic YouTube video Bjork talking about her TV and Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Our editor-in-chief is Dana Harris-Brightson, our publisher is James Israel, and our executive editor is Ann Donahue. Our rational fears include knocking our teeth out after walking down cement stairs, waking up deaf, and getting crushed underneath an 18-wheeler. Our collective podcast fear <laughs> is that no one listens this long, or at all. You can find us on Twitter at a million screens, Edmund West Pitfire, at Ben T. Travers, and at Leo Agent Garcia. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, so leave a review and let us know what you think. This is Ben, Libby, and Leo. Remind you as always that you shouldn't let poets lie to you. You shouldn't let poets lie to you. Ain't nothing wrong with a couple of cold brews and a cool podcast. <laughs> Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.